Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody, along with my co-host, Dr. Pettis Perry. Hey, Pettis, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay, Jill. How are you today? <laughs> well, we had a little rough start there <laughs> with our technical uh, our board here, but uh, I'm glad to have you connected into it now. And I think we also have our guests connected into it, so I'm going to just continue. Our program today is Radical Humility. What does humility mean and why does it matter in the age of golden escalators and billionaire entrepreneurs? How can the cultivation of humility empower us to see success in failure, to fight against injustice, to stretch beyond our usual ways of thinking, and foster a culture of listening in an era of digital shouting? The fierce strain of an Ayn Randian philosophy that is woven throughout America says, what is good for me is right, and selfishness is good. This cannot sustain a society. For a functional, vibrant, and yes, a bold America, humility must be seen as a behavioral strength, not a weakness. Our future depends on it. Be Bold America's guests today are the editors of a new anthology, Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts. Rebecca Modrake is a writer and interventionist artist whose artworks resist consumer culture, and she's a professor in the Stamp School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan. Jamie Vanderbrook is a librarian for art and design at the University of Michigan. She holds a tailored master's degree from the University of Michigan School of Information and Art and Art Museum Librarianship. And this past summer, she bought a book made of cheese for a library. We're going to have to hear a little more about that book of cheese, but first, we have big things to do. Welcome to Be Bold America, Rebecca and Jamie. It is an honor to have you both on the program. Thank you, Jill. And who is this, Rebecca or Jamie? Rebecca. Rebecca, hi. And Jamie? Thank you so much for having us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for hanging in there. It is an honor to have you both on the program. So, Pettis, why don't you kick things off? I'd be glad to. Uh, welcome, uh, Rebecca and Jamie, to Be Bold America. Very excited to have you with us today. I found your work very fascinating uh, as I got into it, and I want you to know that I'm going to steal some of your work, and I will give you credit uh, for my own work. Uh, but I think you guys did a fascinating, uh, or, or you created a fascinating portrayal of the role of humility, and I'm excited about uh, talking with you that about that today. Uh, I'd like to zero in on the chapter by Jennifer Cole on escaping the gravitational pull of the self. I think that that's a very fascinating topic uh, from my perspective. And let me begin just asking you a couple of questions here. So can you tell us what humility is and where it comes from, how it's achieved? That's a, that's a really big question, Pettis, um, to start with. Thanks. So, well, let's stick with Jen, Jen um, right? Then I think to define humility, she's a, she's, a great, she's a great definition. It's one of my favorite ones that I go back to pretty frequently, um, where she says that, you know, we each experience ourselves standing essentially at the center of a universe. And um, in that gravitational pull, we put our own needs and beliefs above those of others. Um, but she says that the key to living an ethical life is to reframe our universe so that our needs are only one set in this gigantic interconnected universe. And humility is a state of awareness that frees us from centering ourselves. Uh, do you see humility then as kind of a gateway to be different? Um, uh, no, to be different from other people, you mean? Uh, in terms of how we approach the world and uh, reorient ourselves so that we're better able to connect with other individuals since we're not uh, so focused on our own self. Oh, I see. To be different from, from being this sort of like, um, you know, person who's in our own bubble um, definitely, and yes, I think I think there is greater connection with other people um, and more meaning um, as you start to do that, as you start to make those connections. Now, I found uh, as I was uh, reading the text that 
I think it's an interesting proposition uh, to center our focus around being uh, uh, humble as opposed to on ourselves. Uh, and I was thinking as I was reading your, your material uh, that for many of us, uh, as we grow into adulthood, we come to realize that we are not the center of the universe. Uh, so I found your work fascinating uh, because it suggests that maybe many more people than I've given uh, credit to really see themselves uh, as the center of the world. Maybe that would explain some of the uh, acts like the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection. Right. Yeah. I think this is Go ahead, Jamie. Jamie. I think that it, it absolutely... If you see yourself as this, like, super unique, special creature, I think it starts to feel like, well, what wouldn't be justified to preserve what you believe in? Um, and I think it gets harder to sort of view us as living in this community that's made up of many different um, potentially valid viewpoints. So, absolutely. Well, um Rebecca and Jamie, I have sort of a, a background question. How did two artists come to write a book on humility? Um, so, well, let's see. So I, uh, I'm an, yeah, as just mentioned, I'm an artist, and, um, and I teach at the University of Michigan. And I was heading to Nebraska one summer. Um, I was going there to interview people who um, who do manual labor, um, farmers mostly in Nebraska, but a few other people as well. And as I was heading to Nebraska, I was sort of leaving behind in, in Michigan um, and thinking a lot about the culture that I was leaving behind, um, which in academic culture is one in which increasingly, I, I found in the last few years, um, we're being asked to, like, status has become much more important than substance um, in many ways. And and that was of concern to me. And I had also witnessed a number of things, um, in events or actions in which I, um, there were failures, and I was expecting sort of the leaders to step forward and acknowledge these failures and, um, you know, remedy them. And that never happened. Um, they were just never willing to admit them. So I headed to Nebraska um, thinking about all of these things. And at the same time, um, in the in national sort of world of politics, Donald Trump came gliding down his golden escalator. And um, a lot of the rhetoric that we saw and the tweets started and um, a lot of much of the um, sort of issues that we saw there began around that time. Um, but when I got to Nebraska and I started interviewing farmers, um, well, a number of things were happening. One is that I would go to different events like a, a picnic or a barbecue or a pancake breakfast and um, I would sit with people and have nice long conversations with them, and then they would leave the room, and the person who was still sitting there at the table would say, oh, by the way, that was our um, town mayor, or one time it was, by the way, that was our state senator. Um, and the person had never identified themselves in that way. They had never you know, made a point of telling me um, what this role was or you know, how significant they were, which was kind of, you know, super um, shift in, in cultural status from where I came from. Um, but I, as I was interviewing farmers, a lot of the farmers kept saying, you know, you should talk to this one farmer. Um, and then the next farmer I talked with said, you should talk to so-and-so. Again, I heard this recommendation. And I asked, you know, well, why should I, what, you know, what, what makes him such a good farmer? And um, the person said, well, he's really humble. And it was a um, it was a virtue that I didn't hear a lot about ever. It never came up, never comes up in Ann Arbor. Um, but I was really curious about it, and I thought, I, I want to know if other people are thinking about humility and, and valuing it in this way. And so I reached out to Jamie, who's the librarian um, of art and design at the University of Michigan, um, and asked, are you, are you curious about humility? That is, and now it's developed into this book. That is absolutely Excellent. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen globally online from the KSQD.org homepage. Here with my co-host, Pettis Perry, I'm Jill Cody. 
KSQD thanks the following recent donors who support our programming in this difficult time. Mark Conover, Joe Rigney, David Reitz, Martin Lawrence, and Michael Funari. You inspire us to give our very best at 90.7 FM. May you also inspire others to donate to our website at ksqd.org or mail a check to P.O. Box 551 Santa Cruz 95063. And yes, you are listening to KSQD Santa Cruz. And now back to Jill at Be Bold America. Today, our topic is radical humility. Pettis and I are speaking with Rebecca Drake and Jamie Vanderbrook whose book, Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts, remarks that an ethical life is one that realizes we are one person among many. So, um, Rebecca or Jamie, whoever wants to take this question, you know, I would think developing humility would be a real challenge when Fox News and uh, the Republican principle, and I'm not talking about the uh, principle with the moral definition, but principle that of theory, uh, the Republican principle is to never apologize, never to say you're sorry, never to admit you're wrong. How do how do we build humility when we have such a political force fighting against it? That's such a good, um, this is Jamie, that's such a good um, segue, I think, into one of the essays in particular in the book, which is written by uh, a lawyer who had worked for a long time defending hospitals when they would be sued for malpractice. Um, and the concept behind their defense was always deny and defend. So as soon as something went wrong, the doctors, everyone was, you know, instructed to deny that anything went wrong and then to sort of enact a fortress around the hospital um, and protect it from the, the sort of like the offense of the, this little lawsuit. So he, he saw after many years of being involved in that that um, not only is it morally or ethically wrong, um, it also was stopping the hospital from getting any better because by not acknowledging things that had gone wrong, they couldn't really focus on them or improve on them. So he revolutionized the way that the hospital malpractice system was working. Um, he's also at the University of Michigan, like us, um, and instead started instructing doctors to immediately apologize when something went wrong and started inviting, almost as mediation style, the family of um the wronged individual to the hospital for conversations uh, to discuss what went wrong, and then also simultaneously to, you know, have lots of meetings and things among the doctors and other hospital staff to address the problem and figure out how to stop it from happening again. And he tells in the, his essay, like, several, uh, I think, very poignant. So I think that... Um, you know, what you say about not apologizing has to start with someone, um, and it's particularly helpful if it's a prominent person, uh, deciding to apologize and doing it publicly mm. and kind of like turning the bus around. Pettis, did you have a question? I do. Um, this My work is in leadership and organizational effectiveness. And so this particular part of your story, your book, uh, really resonates with me as well um, because it really is the role of the leader to set the stage and the tone for how uh, the organization is going to function. And I see way too much denial or pretense that things are not wrong. And I don't think that we can fix things if unless we shed light on them to understand them, uh, put our arms around them, and then work with them. Uh, and I, and as I think about your work, it's this idea of self-centeredness getting in the way of people really being able to be authentic in very real terms, it seems to me. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it takes a really strong person to be able to admit weakness and um, to admit a mistake. And, and what we learned from the book from, you know, especially two of our authors, um, Valerie Tiberius and Melissa Koenig, um, was that a, a lot of the capacity to develop humility begins when you're a child. Um, I mean, it starts, it requires, um, you know, close emotional bonding at an early age. So um, a child has to feel deeply connected to other people um, so, so that they're supported and a sense of belonging and, um, and then also a sense of autonomy. And if they don't have that, you know, they'll spend 
their whole lifetime constantly feeling as though they have to defend themselves because they won't feel secure about their own selves. Um, and then Jen Wright talks about, you know, the importance of somebody, of people experiencing um, limitations and that that's what's really necessary to develop humility. So, you know, when we um, experience, like, fragility, some, you know, the pain of somebody dying, um, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot now, like all of the things that people have lost for the first time, the shifts in education, shifts in, you know, many people who are... Um, who don't have food on the table, who, you know, did a year ago. Um, but, but all of this in, in facing all of these sort of new limitations for many, um, you know, we developed this respect for reality, and that helps us to, um, you know, recognize that we have limits and other people have limits and, um, and start to be more empathic towards other people. And I, I think that carries over into leadership. Very much so. Uh, the idea of empathy is uh, critically important. Uh, we can see what happens uh, just in the, in the two uh, most recent presidents. Uh, you, they're diametrically opposed in terms of how they interact with the world. And right. it begins with humility and empathy, <laughs> uh, quite frankly, uh, when we look at those two particular individuals. Uh, so I really think that you're, you're on to something. Uh, let me ask a, a little bit more of an existential question. Um, I, I'm seeing, as, as I interpret your work through my lens, uh, that there's an intersectionality uh, between humility uh, and things like quantum physics and spirituality. Uh, uh, Collins, Jim Collins, I'm not uh, sure, don't know if you're familiar with his work, uh, but he uh, looked at 2,000 organizations and came up with, I think it was 11 over something like a 15-year period that outperformed every other company in the country. And his findings led to, surprisingly, which it really did surprise me, was humility was one of the primary characteristics that separated those leaders uh, from everybody else in the pack. And it didn't matter whether the person was an accountant or a charismatic leader. Uh, so I see, and I also see this with uh, Maslow's uh, notion of self-transcendence, uh, that we have to be able to evolve and get rid of the barriers. And I see what you're talking about in terms of humility uh, and empathy as really aiding people to get to those uh, points. What are your thoughts? Yeah, this is just, um, well, it's interesting what you say about leaders, um, because I think there's also research that women leaders are more penalized for appearing to be humble or vulnerable. Um, so I think that's like some of, and the, the book addresses to some extent this like paradox between humility and humiliation and sort of your starting point when it comes to humility. So in some cases, you know, like this, um, this male lawyer at the university was in a position to stand up and be vulnerable and then like not be punished for it. But sometimes people with uh, other identities are not always in that position. I think that by apologizing or admitting weakness, uh, things can be even harder for them. So I, I do think it's, it's not like a simple, it's not a simple thing to apply to leadership, especially when you consider intersectionality. Um, but it, it's very interesting what you bring up with um, Maslow and the other researchers, and I think Rebecca was going to say something too. Oh, well, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that point, Jamie, about the difference, um, you know, in like who's the actor in each of these circumstances. Um, I, I guess I was reminded, um, had us by uh, like what you said of the essay by Kevin Hamilton, um, who is a white man and who does acknowledge that um, he, you know, as the dean of a school, is in a is in a position that is, um, you know, in many ways like consistent with, um, the, you know, who, who's usually in a position of power um, in this country. Um, but he has a he has a really terrific response to how he thinks about his own leadership and his role, um, which is to surrender boundaries that um, that. Um, he he sort of is, he critiques service leadership. He said that you know there's this idea that emerged um, you know from Robert Greenleaf a while ago, saying that you know we should be um, 
servant leaders. But he said the problem with that is that it still emphasizes um, independence rather than dependence, and um, and it still reinforces the leader's own position rather than surrendering surrendering your own boundaries or your own autonomy. And so, one of the things that Kevin Hamilton advocates for is that you know you figure out how do I so essentially like use my position as a as a grounds for other people to um, take over my my position. How do I give them, you know, for example, um, the right to set the agenda, or how do I give them the right to even use my salary? Like, how might you have a sort of inflated salary? How does that become theirs? Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, area, I think, of discussion, uh, because what leaders do is leaders form culture. You know, their primary, that's their, one of their primary responsibilities is to shape the culture. And the culture ultimately dictates behavior. So if the, if the leader allows people to be vulnerable, you'll see much more vulnerability, and particularly if the leader is being vulnerable. Uh, so there, there is this, uh, this shift back and forth. Jill, what are your thoughts? Well, um, I wanted to ask a fairly deep uh, question here, so I thought maybe it's time to take a break, and then I can um, ask it afterwards if you're just listening uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Our topic is radical humility. Here with co-host Pettis Perry, I'm Jill Cody. Hello, K-Squid listeners. I'm Todd Hartman, and each weekday at 4 p.m., I bring you a different perspective on the news than you're likely to hear on most media outlets. Please join me on KSQD Santa Cruz, your ink spot on the dial for the Tom Hartman program. Heard now for the first time ever in the Monterey Bay area at 90.7 FM, weekdays at 4 p.m. That's progressive talking conversation with me, Tom Hartman, weekdays at 4 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. Tag, you're it. We're back, and we're speaking with Rebecca Modrake and Jamie Vanderbrook, the editors of Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts, which explains that humility is what allows us to say we were wrong and brave enough to change our minds. So, um, the question that I wanted to ask that I thought we didn't have time for before the break was, um, many years ago, I was speaking to someone who mentioned that uh, a mutual person went to the dark side of the force. And I went, what do you mean by that? And she said, um, you know, the people whose ego has completely taken over and that they don't possess empathy, compassion, or humility any longer. And this was said so many years ago to me, and I've watched that, and I've, I've met people that I felt the ego had just taken over, that they didn't possess um, those traits and humility being... Uh, a major one. And so how does humility and and the ego uh, relate to each other? How does one suppress their ego? Well, I think you can go back to Jen Wright on this um, this question. It makes me think of that she, you know, she not only kind of puts up some definitions of humility for us in the book, but she also uh, reminds us that it's not a constant state. So, you know, someone isn't always humble or always egotistic or proud, um, egotistical or proud. So I think that, um, you know, one thing is that, you know, things happen to us in our lives that probably shift the balance in one direction or another. And, you know, like she says, it's a gravitational pull, which is what holds us on the earth. It's not, it's not an insignificant force to compare something to. So, you know, but like Rebecca says, sometimes things happen to us in our lives that bring us kind of back down to earth or remind us uh, how small we are or how little control we have. And those can kind of be like breakthrough moments, I think, to re-engage with humility. But I think, you know, just because someone has lost their way in terms of humility doesn't mean that they can't get back there. But it, it is something that I think we sort of like come in and out of in life. And I think the more we're aware of it, the more we're self-aware in general, the better chance we have of maintaining it more often. Thank you. Um, you know, and before we, just to break up the intensity, I want to know a little bit more about the book of cheese. What does this look like? And, <laughs> and is it on the internet? Can we see this book? Yes. 
Jamie? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I wrote a little essay about it for subwar.com, uh, the, the um, cooking magazine. So you can find my essay there. Uh, but uh, I bought it from, from Ben Denzer, who is a book artist in, um, on the East Coast. And it really is just craft singles, a block of them bound into book form. It looks like a book that you keep on your shelf. And uh, the, my bio, I think, actually is a little bit old. So we've had that book for two years now. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it, it doesn't live in the refrigerator, um, but it, it lives in a little box. And I keep it in like a sort of a dry, not so humid condition and check on it regularly. But yeah, it, it's a real thing. Well, you did answer my question about how is this book maintained, but you keep it in a dry box? And then people, yeah, is it viewable? Yeah. Can people see it there at the University of Michigan? Uh, Absolutely. And there are 10 of them in the world. So there are a handful sprinkled around the country. I'm not sure if there are any in California. Um, there's one in Texas, I think, for sure. But if you ever find yourself in Ann Arbor, you should absolutely uh, send me an email and we'll go look at the book of cheese together. Well, I do have two friends that go to the University of Michigan. And I wanted to tell them about it because I don't, you know, just to make sure they know about it and, and have them go see it. <laughs> so oh, I may, you may be that. hearing from a couple of students. Um, well, thank you, Jamie. I just had to get that one out because uh, we're talking about some fairly intense things, and I wanted to uh, break it up a little bit. So uh, another question I have is, how does humility create a more meaningful and principle-centered life? Um, well, this is Rebecca, and I, I mean, there, there's some, I feel like this, this book is speckled with examples of that. Um, I, I mean, let's see. There's a beautiful essay by Amy Walsh who writes about um, her job. It's not; it's a volunteer job. She's a writer, and she would go to the hospital once a week um, and to ask patients if they wanted to tell a story. And she would offer to record the story and produce it, you know, um, present it to them afterwards as a recording that they could share with their families. Um, well, she started off doing this work by walking into their rooms and saying. Um, I forget what the language was, but it was something about, um, would you like to do some work with me or would you like to be part of this work? And um, framing it in the language of work and, um, you know, they would tell her they were too tired um, or that, you know, they didn't have a story. Well, she started to to reframe it um, in the language of, um, do you have a, I think, do you have a story to share or um in, in the language of, you know, like, what do you have to give or what could, I, what could I help you to tell? And people wanted to tell their stories. And because of that, um, you know, she collected this amazing collection of stories by people that she then could share with medical students who started to understand patients in more human terms, who started to relate to them because of their own stories, um, who started to, you know, who had been at that point um, you know, in medical school, schooled only in terms of, you know, anatomy and the conditions of the illness and not necessarily, you know, like what is the patient feeling. So um, she helped the medical students to really understand the kind of larger perspective of the patients. And, you know, the, there's so many other great stories like this in, in the book, but I think that's one example of, you know, the kind of meaning and connection that's possible when you start to to reframe your thinking from somebody else's perspective. Well, thank you. Pettis? I think that's a very powerful uh, idea. Um, what I try to teach my students is that we have to learn uh, to see the world of the other person's eyes or through the other person's eyes. Uh, that That's the only way that we can really uh, tap into the kinds of dynamics that are going on uh, in their, you know, in their lives and in, in the lives of the people that we work with. Uh, I, as you've been talking, I, again, I'm finding this is a, a fascinating process. Uh, how is the book, writing the book, putting the book together, how is that changed your lives, both you and uh, Rebecca and Jamie? Oh, I mean, we talk about this a lot, but it's changed our lives for sure. Um, a couple of the essays in particular, some of the lessons in them I find myself referring to almost daily in my interactions with my family and friends. I mean, I think that um, in particular, Valerie and Melissa's essay about how to be a better friend has some really important um, 
I guess, just information in it that can help us, like, just kind of check against our natural impulse to feel that we know what's right for other people. Um, if they are struggling, and so many people have been struggling in this past year, um, we might feel like we know what's right for them or how they should solve their problem or answer their question. But that, you know, instead, I think it's important to remember that, that you know, they are figuring out their own journey and it's not our, it doesn't make sense for us as friends to feel like we should just go around trying to fix everyone in our lives um, so that we can kind of have them all off and running on these paths that exist in our own minds. But, but it's just, you know, not actually as helpful as we might perceive it to be initially. So I use the lessons from the book all the time. Pettis, do you have follow-up? Or? Uh, well, I was, uh, was that Jamie or Rebecca? I haven't. Oh, sorry, that was Jamie. <laughs> Rebecca, do you have some thoughts about that? Um, yeah, I'm, thank you. It's such a good question. I, I think, like Jamie, I I think about these also stories every day, and, and it's evolved over time the way that I think about them. I mean, initially, for me, when I heard stories like Rick Boothman talking about, you know, how he taught doctors how to apologize rather than deny and defend, I, it was just really important for me to know that there were other adults in the world who were in positions of leadership who were apologizing. Um, I mean, that, that was, you know, especially um, three years ago when I first heard that story. You know, I just, that was kind of like a beacon of light that I just wanted to head towards um, because I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted that ring of like one individual to grow larger and larger and to feel there were more and more people like that. Um, and so I would just revisit that story over and over, like a, like a funny bedtime story to just be reminded that that existed. Um, but, but in some ways, the stories change for me. These essays evolve. So more recently, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about um, is related more to politics. Um, I, I feel like I've started to understand the... Um, my, how I think about Trump has changed a lot because of some of the essays. So um, I've started to see him through these essays as, you know, that there's a lot of, um, in some ways, mental illness there from what happened throughout his childhood. And, um, and in some ways, it's helped me to understand sort of the, the, the sickness that he um, has that then is, you know, projected from that onto, you know, all of the people around him. But I think, I think because this book has allowed me to understand a kind of like psychosis um, in, in his behaviors, I in some ways feel like it's shifted my sense of responsibility more towards, towards voters than to him. Um, I started to feel sort of like more upset that people voted him into office than I am with him um, because of that. Because, you know, if you, he's sort of a sick person, but if you, you know, if you vote somebody in who clearly has, has some, you know, visible sicknesses, that seems much more of a problem to me. Well, you are touching on something near and dear, close to my heart, <laughs> and actually leading into another question that I had, which is, um, and, and again, you could say, who the heck knows, but I was going to ask, how can humility be developed in politics? For example, while I was reading your book, the Georgia legislature uh, made it a felony for people to give water and snacks to those in voting lines, you know, that it, it could be in hot summer sun in Georgia. And these are acts of kindness that are being outlawed. And I just went, I can understand humility, and yet here are uh, uh, people in powers of powerful positions outlawing kindness, really. Um, and, and humility is the farthest thing that in their thoughts. So how do people get to the point to make the transformation, even a Repu Georgia Republican legislator? And it's okay to say who that knows. I mean, it's, well, but go ahead. I mean, I think it's something that, like, I struggle with as well. I, I mean, in the, and also in the past week or two, there was a story out of Switzerland where um, the very far right wing in, in Switzerland has um, pushed through a law that is going to... Um, not allow women to wear total um, face and head coverings as part of as part of their religious practice. Um, and uh, I guess 
there's only 30 women that this would apply to in the entire country. Um, and yet this, you know, this person who was speaking on BBC was explaining how he had made it a priority to push the law through. And, uh, and it was so hard to listen to him talk without wanting to not only disregard this action, which I like feel is sort of similar to the law that you just described. And it's like, um, it's total unkindness and it's, um, uh, sort of focusing on this, like, almost, like, um, uh, ugly side of people, I think, to, to, um, to treat others this way. Um, it, I find it a real struggle to listen to that man or to hear the story that you just told and to think about the people behind those acts as, um, as, as people still. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I think right. that one of the things that, like, the group, like, working on the book has, has forced me to do is to, to, to daily, not just, you know, think about like how I can be a better friend to my friends, but, but to remember that the people that I disagree with, even like very strongly disagree with are humans and we're all people together on this planet. And it's almost like all I have is the starting point because, you know, this book is kind of like more like the beginning of a journey than it is like the answer to everything. And, um, so I think that for me, all I can do is just to try to remember that and thinking about how I want to respond to either this right-wing person in Switzerland or a person in Georgia who thinks that that is the best way to, to, to change things um, for their environment. Because uh, otherwise, I think my knee-jerk reaction is just to want to, to disregard it as like in, an inhuman sort of decision to make or so unkind um, that it doesn't bear or that there's no reason to like to respect the decision at all. It is stunning uh, for a state legislature to um, make it a felony to be kind to people in a voting line. (laughs) Just breathtaking. Um, Pettis, any thoughts? Yeah, I was thinking about the other discussion that's in the news about um, uh, making it a felony to or a crime to talk uh, in unkind ways to police was one I yeah, heard today. I so I, too. you know, I, so I think we're headed. I, it, it, what I'm feeling today as we talk about this is this whole drive, a desire to be more humble, but with the pull of being self-centered from the perspective of having to protect self, uh, because we're talking about people uh, who. Uh, who may want to do harm. And so the question is, how do we hold on to the ability to be humble while uh, others are working from a position of self-centeredness, which is really trying to pull us as the individual back to that that place uh, rather than remaining uh, the kind of person we want to be if we want to be more humble. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think, again, like back to Valerie and Melissa's essay, that it's really important to articulate, um, articulate these actions clearly. So, for example, you know, I think I might, I, like in my work for the last three years, I think about, I've, I've thought a lot about humility. Um, but then I have a 10-year-old boy in the house, and it's not something I talk about with him every day. So, you know, Lately, I've been thinking, you know, after reading this essay, um, how do you, you know, how do you make this, how do you, how do you help instill in somebody who's, you know, who's about to go out into the world um, the capacity to make decisions and make evaluations of people's actions, um, especially when they're couched in terms that they're protective um, when they actually might not be. And, um, and I think, like, some of, the, some of the things that they talk about in terms of, you know, for example, like asking questions first. So when you see a policy like this, you know, first asking enough questions so that you understand what the full information is um, and all of the different perspectives, um, and then starting to think about, like, who is hurt or who is vulnerable or made more vulnerable um, by these policies um, and what are their perspectives. Um, and so I think following through some of this process, I think, is really helpful rather than, you know, responding kind of like emotionally to situations. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, Many Voices, One Station. 
Listen globally online from the ksqd.org homepage. Also, if you want to contact either Pettis or myself or have ideas for the show, you can email us at info at ksqd.org. Join KSQD tonight at 9 p.m. for a special radio drama. Actors Theatre presents Rod Serling's The Obsolete Man, a short story that was first dramatized on The Twilight Zone 60 years ago. The play's characters and themes resonate strongly today, and it's the story of a librarian who is pronounced obsolete and sentenced to death by a chancellor of an unnamed fascist state. The librarian, though powerless to the state, ends up challenging the chancellor in a devastating way. Actors' theater radio performance is directed by Joyce Michelson and features Frank Widman, Martin Kuchuk, and Jay Wolf. If you are, you are invited to join the director and actors after the performance for a discussion about the play's themes. You are encouraged to call in with questions and comments. That's tonight at 9 p.m. right after the Hive Poetry Show right here on K-Squid, 90.7 FM and live streaming at ksqd.org. Today, our topic is radical humility, and Pettis and I are speaking with Rebecca Modrake and Jamie Vanderbrook, whose book, Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts, says that humility is necessary to develop into ethical beings. So, uh, you know, towards the end of our show, Rebecca and Jamie, we... Um, we do keep stop starts. What actions uh, would you like your readers and our listeners to keep doing, stop doing, and start doing as it relates to uh, transforming and building humility in our lives? Um, sure. So, so, each of, great question. Go ahead. Um, I would say uh, keep apologizing easily. Mm-hmm. Um, stop. If you're in the position of leadership, Stop setting the agenda and invite someone else to decide the conversation's direction. And um, for the start, if you find you're about to make a judgment that's a bit early, start asking questions instead. And who was that? Was that Jamie or Rebecca? <laughs> that was Rebecca. Rebecca, Jamie? Yeah, I have very similar answers. Um, I think that we need to keep the empathy that has been growing, I think, um, due to the pandemic. I think people have been forced to think about others more, and so I think that's a a good thing to encourage people to continue. Um, I think people should stop worrying so much about being special or unique um, or perfect and and instead to embrace their ordinariness. Um, And I think that people should start... um, very similar to Rebecca, listening to the voice that tells them to pause and listen when they feel very frustrated or angry with a decision or a belief that someone else has. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, um, there was a concept, too, that I, I learned many years ago in a training called Four Quadrant Leadership, and the gentleman was an, um, Wilfred Jarvis, uh, um, since passed away, but he was a behavioral scientist in Australia, and he talked about the concept of whoness and whatness. And I, I see, and he's talking about whoness are those character traits like humility, empathy, compassion, honesty, integrity, uh, building those internal inside out kind of concepts. And then whatness is what people have. You know, uh, how much money do you have? Do you have all the latest technical toys, tech toys, or, uh, have the best car or the prettiest jewelry or, you know, just those those items that give you external, um, you know, that you think gives you some external uh, credibility. And I think we've gone into whatness a lot in our society, you know, that people, people just don't seem to be developing that who-ness as much. And uh, I think your book really helps with that. Do you have any thoughts on um, either Rebecca or Jamie on whoness and whatness? Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about a story that Rebecca told me. So, you know, maybe she she also has ideas. But but also, I think, like, I sympathize with the whatness because, um, you know, Rebecca's an artist and I'm an art librarian, so I buy beautiful books for a living and help people see them and experience them. So I think there's... Um, that like I understand the pull of, of things and wanting things and I don't think that's like inherently necessarily something that has to be entirely rejected 
But I do think that, like, especially in the last year, a lot of us, like, looked up or, and, and looked around and found our families um, to be suddenly, like, much more important or whoever it was that we were living with is, like, suddenly this person that we're with every single day. And so this, like, the, the whatness, like, almost because we weren't going out into the world as much was not, um, it couldn't do its thing or fulfill its role because we were just, like, with these people, these same people over and over again, and sort of emphasizing that those are the people that, um, you know, that, that matter and that, like, um, your relationships with people are so much more important than the things that you acquire in life. But um, I do sympathize, I think, with people who who like stuff, I guess. But go ahead, Rebecca. Good. Thank you. Rebecca. Um, well, I love this idea of whoness and whatness. Um, Jill, it's beautiful, and my, I mean, my essay is really, um, you know, speaks to that, to this consumer culture and um, its effect on us. Um, I mean, in Nebraska, there, there wasn't a lot of wetness, and because of that, there was just a kind of weight lifted in terms of um, less comparison, less data-seeking, um, more focus on things, as Jamie was saying, things that matter, like friendship and, um, you know, activities that you enjoy doing, things that you love, um, people around you. So I, I do think that the what's tend to be big distractions, and they also, I think, you know, a lot of consumer culture plays on our fears and um, sort of encourages us to build identities around it rather than build identities around the things that matter and, you know, thinking about who we are as people and what, what, what is important to us. Well, uh, that, thank you so much. And, and um, Jamie did bring up for me that there are degrees, of course, you know, the whatness, buying beautiful books that will be used for the future and for education and for um, improving our society versus, um, I don't know, collecting, you know, the best, being a car collector and you know you've got beautiful cars but you think that that what is that doing for the future of our society i it might not be the best example but but there's a degree i think in each of those and um apetis do you have any thoughts to add uh absolutely the uh as i was thinking about the what and the who uh i think the the what may help to uh, and this may be a poor choice of words, but may help to define the who. Uh, like in the example of the books, uh, you're reshaping the who of the other person as they digest the things that you give them. Uh, and it also reflects uh, the what in terms of the person who's doing the giving, and it reflects their who. Um, I've, I grew up in a, in a household filled with books. My house is filled with books today. Uh, and that was because of the way that my parents uh, dealt with their what and who. Uh, they wanted to ensure that we, we had uh, rich materials to learn with. Uh, and, it, and it also makes me think of uh, my own work. As you know, I work at a university. And the idea of teachers being the sage on the stage uh, which for me uh, causes them to operate from their self-centeredness rather than uh, from really the, the student perspective or what we call student-centeredness, uh, even when we talk about student-centeredness being important. Uh, so these are really opportunities, I think, to shift, uh, as we've talked about today, uh, and really be on, on better guard uh, with uh, using the energy to push us towards humility. And when that becomes threatened uh, and we start to revert to our self-centeredness, to really resist that uh, so that we can be more empathetic, uh, more authentic, uh, and better at working with people. So thank you both. Uh, any last thoughts there, Rebecca or Jamie? Well, that does office, Jamie. It makes me think about my own essay, which is about libraries and museums. And I think that, like, if you think about it, those are institutions that are for giving whatness to more people. So maybe it's not just the issue of, of having, of building up little palaces of whatness, but if they're just for you, then, <laughs> then maybe that's the problem. So, like, whatever it is, I think, like, 
sharing it with other people is important. Well, my stepfather was a librarian for 40 years at Stanford University, so we had books <laughs> uh, just <laughs> piled, uh, you know, everywhere on every table. And also, you must have had your ears perked up with our show that's coming up at 9 o'clock Pacific Time, The Ob Obsolete Man, where it's a librarian. <laughs> <It's> the <laughs> have you uh, um, read that story by Rod Serling, The Obsolete Man? You don't know, but my dad is like a Twilight Zone devotee and has the whole box set of the oh. um, of Twilight Zone. <laughs> I feel like I must find the story. So I now you have your homework. <laughs> Good. Yes. Well, thank you, Rebecca and Jamie. It's been an honor. I want to apologize to you for our technical start at the beginning there. And uh, we wish you all the best uh, to inspire as many people as possible to understand that Humility is a strength. It is a, it is a human strength, and it opens a lot of doors and a lot of relationships uh, where, the, you know, ego doesn't. And um, I'd like to thank you for writing this book. I enjoyed it very much. I especially liked um, Charles Blow's um, chapter as well. And uh, Pettis? Yeah, I want to say thank you as well. Um, you've really inspired some thinking. Uh, I'm in the process of starting a consulting business, uh, and I can see the application of your work uh, to my work. Uh, so thank you for the contribution. Your whatness gave me some whoness. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I want to thank Be Bold America's program engineer, Christine Barrington, and Howard Feldstein, KSQD's program director. And give another big thank you to today's two terrific and bold guests, the editors of Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts, Rebecca Modrake and Jamie Vanderbrook. Coming next on Sunday, March 28th, is Cancel Culture, Weaponizing from Voting and Dr. Seuss to Democrats and Pizza. We'll be speaking with Media Matters editor-at-large, Parker Malloy, and discussing her most recent article, Fox News' Dr. Seuss Obsession Reveals the Dishonest Desperation of the Right-Wing War on Cancel Culture. So please join Pettis and me on Sunday, March 28th at 5 p.m., you're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online on ksqd.org. Stay tuned for Faith Matters and Seth Shapiro. My name is Jill Cody. And I'm Dr. Pettis Perry. Thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start. <laughs>